0: Hello, and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. I have another letter from Watson to Mycroft written on August 20, 1892. And even though his handwriting is difficult to decipher, I will do my best to read it to you verbatim. My dear Mycroft, Sherlock has requested that I make this report as he is fully occupied at present. I am not to suggest theories or suspicions, but provide you just the facts in the fullest possible manner. While I shall endeavor to abide by these guidelines, I must also place things in context, and that requires that I give you some indication as to his thinking. On Tuesday, August 9, the District Court convened an inquest, ostensibly to determine the cause of death for Mr. and Mrs. Borden. One realizes immediately that this was unnecessary— as there could be no doubt that the couple were murdered by the use of a hatchet. It appears that this inquest was a ruse employed by the prosecution for the sole purpose of developing its case. Under Massachusetts law, the prosecution may choose to exclude the public, and for that matter, defense attorneys as well. Mr. Knowlton, who has the charge of this case, at least for now, exercised his discretion and limited attendance to a handful of officials, all of them in sympathy with his cause. As a result, the courtroom was empty save for Mr. Knowlton, the prosecutor, Dr. Dolan, the county medical examiner, and Marshall Hilliard, the Fall River chief of police. Witnesses were sequestered until they were needed, and having completed their testimony, they were dismissed from the hearing. Almost immediately, upon discovery of these crimes, the police turned their focus toward Mr. Borden's younger daughter, Lizzie. They may have entertained suspicions as to other family members and perhaps the servant, but they have dismissed them all as potential culprits. We have heard some vague speculation that there may have been a Confederate, or as the Americans would say, an accomplice, but none has been identified and evidence is lacking which might link others to these crimes. As you would expect, within hours of the discovery of these murders, Lizzie arranged for legal representation in the form of the family attorney, Andrew Jennings. He seems a capable and determined fellow, and yet, despite his experience and practical sense, he failed to dissuade his client from testifying at the inquest. As I have already noted, Mr. Jennings was not permitted to attend the hearing, rendering Miss Borden's decision even more remarkable. Sherlock was forcibly impressed by Miss Borden's behavior, which he considered most unwise. There can be no doubt that her testimony was given over the objection of her attorney, and we may safely assume that Mr. Jennings did all that lay in his power to dissuade her. That she would ignore his instructions indicates an unusual degree of self-confidence, as well as a willingness to run enormous risks. Immediately upon the conclusion of the inquest on Thursday, August 11, Miss Lizzie was placed under arrest and charged with the murders. She is held without bail, although it is not guaranteed we presume that this matter shall go to trial within the next few months. Whether the defendant obtains her liberty in the meantime will depend on the outcome of the preliminary hearing. It is anticipated that the hearing will commence within the fortnight. If, at the conclusion of that proceeding, the presiding judge determines that the state has probable cause to proceed, Miss Borden shall remain in custody until trial, and that may not occur until next year. Sherlock has devoted much of his energy to identifying and locating Jabez Moriarty. The thought that this brute is moving freely in our midst has caused me many uneasy moments. Sherlock has responded as one might expect, with a subdued eagerness and the suggestion of tension in his brightened eyes. I can see that he dockets any fresh information very quietly and accurately in his brain, And as is his custom, he often leaves me guessing as to what his exact plans might be. He is able to relieve the strain of this investigation when necessary by throwing his brain out of action and switching his thoughts on to lighter things. He does this whenever he is convinced that he can no longer work to advantage. I have none of this power of detachment and so I am constantly plagued with the prospect of Moriarty's hellish cruelty and all his hidden wickedness. Because the villain might be anywhere, Sherlock takes precautions to avoid discovery, and to that end, he employs an American accent to good effect. He has adopted an alias and presents himself as a native of New York City. When asked how he came to work for a London newspaper, He says that he is but a lowly stringer, and to this point, the explanation has succeeded in deflecting further inquiry. As I mentioned, he has made the acquaintance of some reporters, and this has provided him with a good deal of information, not all of which has proved false. He has also, in his role as a newsman, cultivated the friendship of two or three uniformed officers from the city police. He stands them drinks, and in exchange, they give him answers. These can be viewed as a form of currency. Sherlock exchanges this information with other reporters, receives their news in return, and thereby keeps abreast of the latest events. I have been assigned, for the most part, to play a spy upon the Borden home, recording the identities of all who come and go. Sherlock takes pains to make some alterations to my appearance on a regular basis prior to sending me forth, so that my efforts will not be exposed. As a result, I have appeared outside the Borden home in a variety of beards and side whiskers. On Wednesday last, Sherlock traveled to Boston to make inquiries at the Cunard office. Having learned of Miss Borden's passage upon the liner Scythia in June 1890, Sherlock made this the starting point of his investigation. He has spent some little time endeavoring to unravel the manner in which the lady made Moriarty's acquaintance, and in so doing, Has acquired fresh proof. While it is a capital mistake to theorize before obtaining all the evidence, one must form some hypothesis to guide one's investigation. Having called upon the shipping office, your brother inquired as to the identity of the ship's doctor in June 1890, and he has thereby established a number of important facts. The individual who held that position called himself Alan Davidson, and I shall refer to him hereafter as both Davidson and Moriarty, since they appear to be one and the same man. Davidson has been described as a competent professional, but, more significantly, as a man of vicious habits. In other words, having obtained this position as a ship's doctor, he wasted little time in acquiring a sinister reputation. Davidson was described as having a variable personality, at times exhibiting a wily, suave, and cat-like nature with a poisonous gentleness of speech. At the same time, he was easily provoked, and in those circumstances, his innate depravity would quickly show itself. The office manager, who had some direct interaction with this man, described him as having a smiling face and a heart of marble. Davidson had every appearance of a cold-blooded scoundrel possessed of a scheming mind. The fellow made it a habit to concentrate his efforts upon unattached women and set to work his evil influence upon them. From the information obtained, it was evident that no woman could be safe who fell within his power. Every lady was ready prey for this adventurer. This description, which I have provided, coincides with all that Sherlock knew of Jabez Moriarty and confirmed your brother's opinion that these two men are, in fact, one and the same. Having adopted this hypothesis, Sherlock then set himself to find out what had become of the man. He learned that Davidson was discharged almost immediately upon the ship arriving at Liverpool in the summer of 1890. The captain had received complaints about Davidson's indiscretions, and, having been confronted with these allegations, the doctor became enraged. There ensued a violent quarrel which culminated in Davidson striking the captain and knocking him to the floor. He was fortunate to escape prosecution, and having been discharged on the spot, he promptly disappeared. Sherlock ascertained that Davidson had previously been employed by two prominent German shipping lines. Further inquiry established that the blackguard had been terminated from those positions for similar conduct as has already been described. While it is conceivable that he managed to obtain similar employment with some new shipping firm, it would have proved difficult, particularly without recommendations or letters of reference testifying to his good character. Although he might have forged such documents, this would only serve to buy him time, as his true nature was bound to assert itself. Eventually, his reputation would overtake him, and he would find himself blacklisted from all reputable employers. With this information in hand, Sherlock proceeded to sketch out a preliminary hypothesis, which I summarize as follows. Miss Borden embarked upon this tour on the verge of her 30th birthday, a critical milestone in her life. We may assume with some confidence that at the start of this voyage, Miss Borden was unhappy, unmarried, and increasingly determined to have her own way. Early in the voyage, Davidson set his sights upon her, and employed all the, all the false charm at his disposal. For the first time in her life, Miss Borden found herself the object of attention at the hands of a man whom she viewed as comely polished and cultivated. Her inexperience with previous suitors made her all the more vulnerable to his approach. He favored her over all the other women, and within a matter of days, he had discovered her secrets. The miserly father, the constrained circumstances under which she lived, the deceitful and scheming stepmother, the drab existence dragging on year after year. He recognized the quiet desperation of her life, and this in turn encouraged him in his pursuit. At first, she was but a plaything to be seduced and used for his amusement and then discarded at the conclusion of the voyage. But his views changed as her qualities became more evident. He was not accustomed to strong-willed ladies, and in all likelihood he found himself intrigued by the force of her character. She posed him a challenge, a challenge which he welcomed, just as she felt constrained by the circumstances of her provincial life, so he felt confined by his shipboard duties and by the expectations of his employer, a conventional existence he found profoundly boring, almost intolerable, and the conquest of Miss Borden provided an outlet for his evil instincts. And so, within a short time, a resolve formed within him. He would bring her within his control, break her will, and reshape her to his liking. And then, having once succeeded, he would inevitably tire of her and so move on. This is how Sherlock envisioned their developing relations— Having lost his position so unexpectedly, Davidson found himself at loose ends. He could not remain long in England, given his role in the Whitechapel murders. Nor would his brothers have tolerated his presence. And so, having already acquired the details of Miss Borden's itinerary, he arranged to meet with her as soon as she had gained the continent. He had enjoyed considerable success in the wooing and destruction of unmarried women over the course of many years, so it posed no great challenge for Davidson to arrange repeated assignations. Mr. Borden's fortune was forever in his mind, and at some point he determined to pursue it. He had nowhere else to turn. His brother Adam had already fled England and disappeared, and the professor was on the verge of flight. So, with nowhere else to go and running short of funds, he pursued Miss Borden to America. She might not have, at first glance, appeared to be an obvious target for his machinations, but as I have already explained, he almost certainly found her character to be intriguing. In addition, she had the misfortune of being readily at hand, and she was fresh in his mind. We cannot say with any degree of certainty just when Moriarty arrived in pursuit of Miss Borden, She returned in November 1890, and it is likely that he was in America within a matter of months. Sherlock bases that supposition in part on a violent murder that occurred in New York City in April 1891. The victim was a middle aged prostitute, and she suffered a similar fate to those of the Whitechapel murders. There are striking similarities, and the timing of the New York City murder would coincide with everything else we know about Moriarty's whereabouts. Based on all this, Sherlock believes that Moriarty left New York City in the late spring or early summer of 1891 and that he has been living in the vicinity of Fall River ever since. We have learned of a mysterious daytime burglary at the Borden residence that occurred in the summer of 1891 when both sisters and the servant Bridget Sullivan were at home. Mr. and Mrs. Borden were away at the time. The burglar entered the parents' bedroom and availed himself of cash and a few items of jewelry which included a gold watch belonging to Mrs. Borden. This may have been committed by Moriarty himself, or at his instigation. It may have been a preliminary step in the direction of the murders, designed to give Miss Borden confidence that she could carry off a crime without detection. It might have also served to accustom her to the idea of violating her parents' trust and avenging herself upon them for their perceived wrongs. Sherlock acknowledges that all of these theories, in combination, or viewed as a whole, present him with certain difficulties, and among them are the following. How has Moriarty managed to communicate with Miss Borden all this time without being discovered? How has he played upon her resentments sufficiently so as to participate in these crimes? How often have they been meeting, and where? How did Moriarty gain access to the House in order to commit these crimes, And how did he escape undetected? Why did they choose to commit the murders in this location and on this particular day? Had they been discovered or were they on the verge of being exposed by Mr. Borden or his wife? In other words, had their relationship been discovered and is that why they had acted? Had Miss Borden recently learned that her father was intending to make an unfavorable disposition of his estate? What, if anything, did Emma know about Moriarty and his role? Among other things, Sherlock has heard a rumor that Miss Borden visited an attorney in Providence about a week before the murders. Presumably, she sought guidance as to how the estate might be distributed under various scenarios. She may have received some highly unfavorable news, which, coupled with the urging of her lover, culminated in these horrific murders. This is a thread which Sherlock intends to pursue. As I have mentioned already, certain avenues of pursuit have been closed off. Sherlock was unable to examine the crime scene for himself, and to this day he has been unable to enter the premises. He is unlikely ever to speak directly with Miss Lizzie. He does not know how much she has confided in her attorney. He cannot risk approaching Mr. Jennings and seeking his cooperation, since the lawyer may already know of Moriarty's involvement." Although we have no reason to think that Jennings would expose Sherlock to unnecessary harm, his foremost duty is to protect Miss Borden, and he might thereby convince himself that he would be justified in exposing Sherlock to her lover. There is a minister, a certain William Walker Jubb, who is English by birth. It so happens that he emigrated to America quite recently, in the spring of 1891, and by happy chance he is employed at Miss Borden's church. The Reverend Peabody who is well-connected in the world of Massachusetts clergy, has provided Sherlock with a letter of introduction. In addition, Sherlock has cabled inquiries to his associates in Scotland Yard, and to this point, all evidence indicates that Mr. Jubb is a man of unimpeachable character. Even so, his loyalty clearly lies with Miss Borden, and assuming that he is an honest man, Sherlock is nevertheless faced with the same risks as those presented by Mr. Jennings. How might he approach the Reverend Jubb without exposing himself to unnecessary dangers? Everything that I have said about Mr. Jennings and Reverend Jubb would apply as well to Emma. At this time, Sherlock views her as subordinate to her younger sister, submissive and compliant in the face of her sister's strength of character. Clearly, her loyalty lies with Miss Lizzie, and even if she were horrified to know the truth about Moriarty, it would not guarantee her cooperation. There are two other potential sources of assistance, the one being Bridget Sullivan, formerly in service to the Borden family. She has left that position and is currently residing in a local boarding house. She seems to hold no great affection for Miss Lizzie, and she may be amenable to speak with Sherlock. The second candidate would be the maternal uncle, John Morse, who was a guest at the Borden home the night before the murders and who has been residing there ever since. He is a lifelong bachelor in his late 50s and has been described as an eccentric fellow. I believe that Sherlock finds him intriguing. It appears that he and Lizzie never enjoyed close relations, so there is no reason to assume that he would place his loyalty to her above the truth. There appear to have been some genuine affection between Morse and Mr. Borden, and in fact the latter appears to have confided in the former as much as he confided in anyone. Morse has referenced conversations with Mr. Borden involving potential bequests of the latter's estate. To the extent that he was fond of the old man, Morse may be open to Sherlock's approach. Morse also appears to have been close with Emma. He lived for many years out west and corresponded with her on a regular basis. Since returning east, it appears that he has resumed a visiting relationship with her. How that bears upon this case remains unclear. With all this in mind, Sherlock is inclined to pursue a more indirect approach to this investigation. He has obtained a description of Moriarty's appearance. He took considerable pains to consult as many sources as he could find to compile a mental image of this man, and he is confident that it is accurate. Unfortunately, there appear to be no unusual or distinguishing features that would stand out so it will not be an easy task to locate Moriarty solely through his physical characteristics. Sherlock plans to attend the preliminary hearing, which will likely run for several days. He is hopeful that Moriarty will find it impossible to stay away, and, if so, Sherlock may be able to identify him. You know how skilled he is at following people and remaining undetected. So in the event that he does identify someone whom he suspects to be Moriarty, he would almost certainly follow the man back to his lodgings and pursue the investigation from that point. I shall conclude here and promise to be in touch again sometime soon. Even if we do not identify Moriarty among the attendees at the preliminary hearing, The hearing itself is likely to yield some of those missing pieces that Sherlock needs in order to construct this case and bring it to a successful conclusion. I remain faithfully yours, John H. Watson. So, we're going to finish here, and in the next episode, we're going to have some more details that we have not discussed or considered up to this point In particular, we're going to focus on something that comes up in the testimony, but that was not pursued by the prosecution or the police. I mentioned it earlier. It has to do with something that Mr. Borden was seen carrying back to the house immediately prior to his murder on the morning of August 4th. So I hope that you join me for the next episode. I look forward to it. And until then, take care.